Hi, I'm Craftsmanship Quarterly audio producer Chris Igusa. We're continuing our series, Artisan Interviews, in which we bring you conversations with the artisans behind the stories, as well as those who write about them. Today's guest, Rebecca Burgess. Rebecca Burgess is the executive director of Fibershed, a nonprofit focused on transforming the clothing and textile system, and the author of two books, Harvesting Color and Fibershed. She is a vocationally trained weaver and natural dyer. Rebecca has built an extensive network of farmers and artisans in the Northern California Fibershed to pilot an innovative fiber systems model at the community scale. The project has become internationally recognized with over 53 Fibershed communities now in existence. I sat down with Rebecca to talk with her about price and privilege when it comes to artisanal clothing, why the world can no longer afford fast fashion, and what she learned from a year of only wearing clothing produced within 150 miles of her home. So welcome, Rebecca. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. So first of all, you are involved in so many things. How do you usually describe yourself and your work to other people who you first meet? I don't always relish having to explain that to people. (laughs) Yeah. I'll say, if I tried to describe it simply, it's the nexus between climate, soil health, and the clothes we wear while also solving for the disparities between where our environment is and where it needs to be for us to maintain ourselves on this planet. So textiles is is definitely an organizing principle and textile systems, fashion systems, but they tie so intrinsically and we've, we've successfully divorced material culture from our thinking around the environment. And yet the reason why we have anything going on with the environment that's causing challenges, trials, and tribulations is because of our material culture. So (laughs) um, I try to marry those things, both them back together for people and think about clothing as a way to think about soil health and climate change and inequity and how to solve for big problems with how we think about our second skin and how we are uh, in relationship to our second skin. Yeah. Well, in that spirit, let's try to kind of dive into some of your work and maybe tease it apart for people who are listening. So let's just kind of start from the beginning. The organization that you founded is called Fibershed, right? So let's just start with how do you define Fibershed? What is a Fibershed? That's a great starting point. Fibershed, <laughs> as, you know, as, a, as a noun, is a landscape. It's a strategic geography, really, that defines a textile resource base. And that's what it is. So hence you would, if you knew your fiber shed, it means you would know the land base from which materials were grown, how materials were manufactured, like you'd have touch points with that. And that's similar to a food shed. If you could trace back food to its origin, you would be able to understand land, labor, transportation, processing, all of that would be be known to you if you were really in tune with what your food shed looked like or your watershed. Similarly, where is your water coming from? And I, I use that term fiber shed because I think of the essentials that human beings need, you know, water, food, shelter, mm-hmm. and clothing being the first form of shelter. To me, it's critical 
mission critical that we understand these very essential and fundamental things that all humans, in my opinion, have a, a right to. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And um, but a, a right to it in a way that is sustaining and allows for you know a thousand human generations to also have the right to that in future. So I would say that I, I think we we owe ourselves this you know special attention to water, food, and fiber sheds, and and that's why I coined the term. Yeah, it. it- very much feels like we are in a moment um, of reckoning, asking, can we continue on this path? And I know for even myself, I feel like I've only more recently become awakened and aware to a lot of these issues in the clothes that I buy and thinking about them on a deeper level. But I do think that some of the issues that you're bringing up, it can feel overwhelming to people. So maybe we can talk about a bit of your own journey into coming to some of this awareness and thinking about these issues in this way. And I wanted to start with something that I have read a lot about you is this commitment that you made for a year that you'd only wear clothing that had been made within 150 miles of your home, right? Grown and made. Um, And that's your fiber shed. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. My fiber shed was, was 150 miles (laughs) from my front door originally. Yeah. And so I want you to tell me, like, how did you come to decide to start that experiment? You know, what did you learn through that process? Oh, well, it changed my life forever. Um, What I initially the goal was, I just felt like I needed to use myself as like, I don't know, as a guinea pig to understand this concept of localizing this particular part of my material culture. So I worked with local knitters and weavers. I myself am a self-taught natural dyer. I'm also um, in university was was exposed to and trained in computerized weaving. So I do have a background in the craft of clothing production and the making of it at a, at a very artisanal level. And so through my own offering my own skills to the project and inviting a community of others who had these skills and who had complementary skills that I did not have. And we brought together the maker community and they were paired. Some of them were also design students. And we paired ourselves with the farming community in the region. I think most people were pretty comfortable at the most advanced levels of this concept of a fiber shed, going to a farm, maybe finding a farm yarn, like their sheep on this farm, the producer manages them or manages for wool, the wool. We still have like a few remaining small wool mills. They could send the wool off. They'd have a yarn returned. It's a very fragile supply chain. Um, and, and, and so when I talk about it, like lightly, like, oh yes, this thing just exists. It, it is very fragile. It needs a lot of support, mm. but they're even at its best, you know, um, I would say, you know, it's still a very limited space where we have a few remaining people doing this work to produce their own yarn from their own livestock. So yeah, it was within 150 miles. It was my underwear, my socks, my bathing suit. Everything came from the land and was hand constructed. And the learning, you know, I could just summarize by saying there was millions of pounds of fiber and there was very few people 
utilizing that fiber, even in the global marketplace. Like that wool was not making it to a middle. It was making it to a barn rafter, a mulch pile, a dumpster. There was a ton of wool that just didn't have a home. And that's because those sheep were grazing. They're doing grazing services. Um, it was because they're being sold as lamb and not being valued for their wool or not valued very much for their wool. So I, I started to understand that we had this incredible amount of colored wool, varieties of breeds, and we had millions of pounds of unused wool or not wool not used for its highest use, highest and best use. Yeah. So to me, that was just shocking. And it put me on a life mission to unend this ridiculous story that we can't have natural fibers because there's not enough of them. <laughs> yeah, I guess my understanding that just comes out of the culture is, yeah, natural fibers and wool and things are rare. But as you said, that's kind of shocking to hear that so much of it goes unused. That's a very different narrative <laughs> than what you usually hear. It is. The the industry has gotten so big and centralized. If you were to say the system is soiled to skin, and that's what fashion is. Mm -hmm. The system is so centralized and so such a monolith, it doesn't even know itself anymore. It doesn't know. It doesn't really know right from wrong, I would say, because it's become a non-human set of corporations. And so it just doesn't have the ability to understand what it's wasting what it's undervaluing, what it's missing. And I started to see what it was missing and undervaluing. And I was like, wow, what a mess that could be solved. Like, we don't need all this polyester and nylon. We actually have a lot of material right here. And a lot of it, 900,000 pounds of it in my community could be more mixed skin. It's fine enough for that. The rest of it, you could put into outerwear. You could make insulation that's clean for your home you could make rugs underfoot that keep your home warm you could all kinds of things you could do it's an incredible protein hmm. just out of curiosity do you have a favorite piece of clothing that you created from your own fiber shed well at the time um pants were really hard to come by so i did have one pair that i just absolutely loved. I called them the golden pants. They were made from color cone cotton. And then I had a pokeberry sweater that was made with a fine fiber from Mendocino County and it was dyed pokeberry and it was made by this woman, Sachi Henrietta and the wool grower who has now passed his gene near. Yeah, that, that sweater and those pants, I mean, they were just very stunning and beautiful and fun to wear. Um, for you, what was the difference in the feeling or the experience of wearing a piece of clothing that you had been so intimately involved with its creation, you know, and knowing that it came from this area around where you live and knowing the, the producers and having those relationships, how did that experience differ for you from the experience of wearing something that you buy off the rack at a store somewhere? It's a tremendous sense of meaning it's almost like you're wearing your community you feel them in the clothing like you 
also are less you. You know, you're less of an individual. You're actually just one tiny piece of this dynamic system. And so it's very humbling and it kind of puts you in your place a little like, oh, like I didn't make all of these things. And I'm very clear that I did not make all these things. And I know who did and I know how much labor they put into it. And boy, am I lucky. You kind of feel like you're the one who got out of the deal, like this amazing thing. Like, wow, I got out of this so much. I got the cherry on the top of the cake. I get to wear it. Um, you feel the benefit, the humility, the gratitude pretty consistently. And also like it, your smallness, like it, it shrinks your, it does the opposite of what fast fashion does to the psyche. It wasn't like this big ego boost where you're like, oh, I'm wearing these things and there's a whatever luxury brand name on it. Or I'm wearing the look that just came off the runway in Paris like a month ago. None of that. You actually end up feeling kind of like, yeah, like I said, you're part of a community and you're kind of a small part of that community. Mm. And the context of yourself, I think, is put into a really healthy perspective, a very realistic perspective. And since we did the one-year wardrobe challenge, I mean, now it has become, you know, we have a textile economies and regional economic development arm. We have a climate beneficial agriculture arm. We have a public education arm. And to really codify that work and make the work more available, I mean, to have community-driven textile systems, to make that more available and to keep lifting it up, is the work we're doing now. And I think people understand the value and the necessity. What I think is hard that needs more support is when you've broken a system, I think human beings need to sit with the fact that we've been chasing convenience and price point almost exclusively and aggressively for decades. And we have a so weak of collateral damage that has been created from those pursuits. I want it cheap. I want it now. And that's it. That is the MO of many an American, even regardless of class, you see it across the board. And there is a huge price to pay in eradicating skills from our community the eradication of manufacturing, the eradication of inter- and multi-generational vocational trade. I, I think that that's where we're at right now. We need people to understand the severity and the gravity of chasing cheap and chasing fast. It's changing the fabric of your lived experience from the post office to the grocery store. It is changing if you, you know, I swear every comedian though, I feel like has a joke about everyone else in the world being dumb or annoying. <laughs> right. There's like this chronic meme of like, why is everyone so dumb and annoying now? And it's like, well, part of what we're doing to each other is we're devaluing each other. We don't have this sense of I need you and you need me to survive. Mm. We lost that. And then we, on top of it, we've de-skilled our society. And if you combine those two things, there's an irreverence for life and there's an irreverence for each other that we have bred. And I think it's uncomfortable. And I think, 
I mean, yes, it makes for good satire, but it's really sad. (laughs) I imagine that there are probably a lot of people who are priced out of buying this kind of locally sourced materials and clothing that might be handcrafted, right? Even if it's better in all of these ways that you've talked about, I'm sure that it's also more expensive too. So how do you address that kind of paradox of price and privilege that this way of thinking about it is so powerful and it's the the direction that you feel we need to go, and yet it is probably out of reach for a large chunk of the population? At current, it is because of the evisceration of the trades and the manufacturing sector. We've lost, you know, some basic efficiencies that are helpful. Like I said, nothing's black or white in this conversation. We do need technology and we do need efficiencies, but we need them to uplift culture, not to eviscerate culture. But I think ultimately the best thing we could do together is to divest from the Ross's dress for less and the, sorry, I don't want to call out too many more names, Forever 21. Like, get out of the Ross fashion. Stop buying new from mega corporations and let them know why. (laughs) Communicate to them because I tell you, they listen to customers is the only, is one of that plus, yeah, market trends is what shapes their actions. So if we divest from them and we let them know, hey, I don't know where you're getting this fiber from. Could you be more transparent? How are people paid across your supply chain? Are you looking at regenerative agriculture? Are you focused on climate change through agriculture? Um, And then using what dollars you have to think about secondhand clothing swaps. So you're trading clothes and keep, those are critical. Those are mission critical that we buy secondhand and we have clothing swaps because I was just on a call earlier today with Abena, Sammy and Janet who are in Accra, Ghana, and they are working at the Contamanto market that receives 15 million secondhand units of our waste textiles per week. 15 million units per week. And they say that like, they didn't say what percentage, but I've heard anywhere from like 40 to 60% of what is sent is like textile garbage. It cannot be resold. And so then those communities are incinerating it and landfilling it in open pits. So we're clearly overproducing. So even if you say, I can only afford Ross Dress for Less, or I can only afford Forever 21, I would say the world cannot afford you to only shop at Forever 21. Accra Ghana cannot afford you doing that. The Contamanto market workers cannot afford you doing that. The, the people still receiving piece rate sweatshop wages. Globally, you still see the piece rate, which means they only get paid per piece. So they sew as fast as they physically can. We're de-skilling the workforce. We're literally taking the skills that they are proud of, that they feel that they're high skilled and they know they are, but we're making them work so fast they're producing junk. And then that junk ends up in continental market. So from Bangladesh to Mexico to Los Angeles production centers, 
through your cheap wardrobe and then out to Contamonto, you know, we could say, oh, we, you know, I can't afford to pay more for higher quality. And it's like, fine, then, you know, swap by second hand. But please, you know, don't put more pressure on the most vulnerable and fragile people in the world by doing this. So I think we're having a very one-sided class conversation in the U.S. and Europe, you know, about elitist clothing. And I'm like, <laughs> mm. that's actually an elitist conversation because you're leaving out the people, the production and, and the people receiving all your waste. When you include their voices, walking into a fast fashion store and acting like you can't afford anything else is still, unfortunately, an elitist act. So... I, I don't have a lot of patience for it anymore. Yeah. It's like we're outsourcing the work, but we're also outsourcing all the damage, right? Yep. And then we look at, then we have this, you know, country-based class conversation where we're like, oh, you can afford that whole sweater. And it's like, well, actually I got it at the Goodwill or, you know, actually I swapped it with a friend. You know, there are ways, there are ways of doing this. And even if you just slowed the fast fashion cycle down, like, okay, well, all I can afford ultimately is this right now, but I do need new. Just try to slow it down and try to repair the clothing or try to wear it. Even if it has holes, I only close up holes. <laughs> it's like, I don't really care if my clothes, I'm sorry, my clothes have holes. I'm sorry if you think I'm impoverished. And yes, I have been asked if I'm homeless before while walking down the street and if I needed help, but I don't really care. <laughs> You can just call it distressed, right? And then it's a fashion trend. <laughs> I mean, people have turned that into a look. Mm -hmm. That denim has successfully turned holes into a commodity. So one question I had just following off of what you were just talking about with some of these major brands and, and sending a message to them. What are your thoughts on you yourself working with some of these brands, the creators of some of this damage to the environment and to workers and trying to change some of the practices versus approaching this from the outside and maybe trying to kind of supplant that system? I've found it's both and. If I have an opportunity to work with a brand and see that I can support changes, and obviously like there are times when it, it feels high risk because it's not perfect and it could be construed as um, like, oh, you're giving that brand more ability to be seen as good in the marketplace when ultimately we need an entire new system. I, I do acknowledge and work with that criticism and I look for opportunities where the brands can help each other and can help smaller artisan projects. So a quick example of that is when we worked with a company based in Alameda, California at the time, they were in Alameda, it was the North Face. And because they could aggregate more cotton and more wool than individual design houses and craftspeople living and working in Oakland, San Francisco, and Berkeley, the North Face could aggregate a lot of wool from a few of our key ranches where we're doing climate beneficial work. And they were able to move that through mill minimums. So the mills have very high minimums in the U.S. because they need to be very large to compete globally because of labor costs. So we pay people more here in the U.S. And so often the only way to compete is to have a huge mill with as few people in there as possible. It's like the only way to stay afloat. 
which means that very big mill with that very large equipment needs very high minimums. You can't move 100 pounds. You have to move 80,000 pounds through it. Mm. And that's kind of where the American manufacturing textile system has landed at the larger scale. Like there's very many mills, there's very few mid-scale, and then there's larger scale, but not many large scale and not many mid-scale. They're very limited. So we talked the North Face, you know, into working in a domestic supply chain. That was, you know, a first. And then, well, in their, their origin story, it wasn't. But since they were bought by the BF Corporation, you know, working domestically was, was not a norm at the time. So it was novel and we were returning some core values back to their origin story. And then we were able to move this material through a series of supply chain partners within the U.S. This wool made it through. And we were able to split the yarn that went to the North Face and they made their products. But we had this yarn available and it's very hard to get our locally branched fiber into yarn. That is like one of the hardest value addition systems to hurdle because of the mill minimums. You need hundreds of thousands of dollars, even if you only need five pounds of yarn. So we got this yarn into the hands of a mom and pop weaving mill in Sacramento. We got the wool into the hands of hand knitters, artists, 102 home sewers ended up getting access to a textile made by the mom and pop shop using the wool that the North Face helped generate into yarn. And that just was, that would not be available. So that is where I see benefit. I also see benefit in working with these companies because at the end of the day, you're working with people. and these people end up learning things through the process of going to the ranch. Like I work for a brand. I've never seen a farm. Okay, well, let's go to a farm together. Yeah. And I just got back from three days of farm tours. And it was like, people were saying, I have a complete new understanding of agriculture. Direct quote. And those individuals I have watched, I've been in this job long enough to watch people stay in those companies and do really powerful work across all of their supply chain. I've also watched them leave those companies and start their own new businesses based on these values. And I've also seen them graduate from those companies and become consultants and start consulting many other companies in how to embed these values. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm at that point where I, I'm a very much of a both and person and at the end of the day, we're all people. And I do believe we can make things better at, at large corporations. Um, but I do think at the highest level, <laughs> the entire economic system needs um, a reboot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I do love, you know, your perspective in breaking these big systems or big anonymous corporations down into individual people and that ultimately maybe a place to start with this is individual change and that's kind of how we get to the systems change that so many in this field want consciousness it consciousness. change consciousness we cannot create policy and i know that there's like a tit for tat that everything's gotten so bad it will only be changed through large-scale governmental intervention okay granted well that in nine times out of 10 for energy systems, transportation, housing, um, 
climate refugeeism, like that's all going to be true. However, who's crafting those policies? Where is their thinking? How are, are they thinking thermodynamically? Are they thinking about biogeochemistry? Are they thinking about the history of colonization? Like we have deep work to help people craft the large scale mobilization. Like this consciousness levels have to be there. And that's what I see. Again, it's like, I guess our work, because we're small, is in that consciousness raising and those relationships. But at the end of the day, when I kind of sit down at the end of the day and I think, well, what would I do differently if I did have like 100 employees? Mm-hmm. Actually, we would do nothing differently. We would just expand the existing methodology. We would take more brands to farms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's great. Well, um, I guess the, the last thing I wanted to ask is just for people who want to get involved in their own fiber shed in this kind of soil to skin or like farm to closet world of, of clothing and, and material making, what do you recommend? How can they begin uh, on that journey? What's an easy way to start? Oh, there's um, a place on our website it's called the affiliate community and there's a way to see where there's people doing fiber shed organizing across the world most of the fiber sheds are in i guess all the anglophile countries they're in english speaking colonies like <laughs> they're in the united states and, and australia which i'd actually love i love that these new spaces where we're trying to repair really deep wounds around colonization we're actually now having a question mark of how we Um, make an economy a place-based economy because this country was not based on place it was based off of exports and it's always been based off of exports to mother countries that take all the value and that's how the caribbean was or i mean south america central america it's like that's the history so i love that there's fiber shed organizing talking about what is a place-based textile economy how do we take pressure off of the global system that functions on anonymity and how do we put a face on it and they're they're all in the uh, directory on fibershed.org's website. And that's called the affiliate program. And if people don't see any organizers in their region, that's okay. You know, there's ways that you can just engage in, as an individual by starting to see if there are any artists, farmers, community members in your area that are doing this work. Is there a weaving guild? Um, is there some of the, the guilds are, are great places to start? I've also, if, as a, from a natural dye perspective, if you're interested in that, you know, it's going to the, for me, it was like going to this mix of native plant society walks for free, where I would walk and understand the botany of my region, combined with taking classes in natural dyes, where we might be using dyes from other locations. But then I kind of merged my understanding of the flora of my region with these basic principles of dyeing. So you can find, you know, you can get to know your place through so many angles, but understanding your ecosystem is critical to understanding your fiber shed. So actually knowing your food shed and your water shed is the undergirding of really knowing your fiber shed. So I think it's just like, what, what is this place you live in? <laughs> right. Yeah. Just getting familiar with it. Um. Well, for people who want to follow your work and Fibershed's work, where's the best place to follow you on social media and the web? 
a lot of our work is shared through Instagram. We are on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook as well. And those are portals that the listener is comfortable with. Those are great places to get more immediate updates. But if those are not of interest, and I totally understand, it's kind of like challenging to have to work with some of those algorithms and deal with Mm. that level of surveillance. But um, we do have the newsletter. And I think that is like a beautiful, safe space for anyone who wants to stay off social media, which I get. It's, um, you can go to our website, fibershed.org, and sign up for the newsletter. All right. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me and um, talking about this. It's just been really a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Likewise. I really appreciate the thoughtful questions. And this was a real pleasure. This episode's guest was Rebecca Burgess, sustainable clothing author and executive director of the nonprofit Fibershed. It was produced by me, Chris Igusa. Check out more stories about sustainable fashion in Craftsmanship Quarterly, a multimedia online magazine about artisans, innovators, and the architecture of excellence. More stories, videos, audio recordings, and resources on craftsmanship can be found at craftsmanship.net.